Trafalgar Day, but we are aware that Trafalgar Day is coming up on Wednesday. Yeah, so we have decided to go with a relevant theme. A nautical theme. A nautical theme indeed. This week we're talking about how to survive survive at at sea. (laughs) So Sean, I'm going to tell you a story that is quite a prominent story in our headlines at the moment that's going on in the world. So I'm just going to go straight in there. So there were 15 of us on the boat and I am the only one alive says Mohammed Adam Ogre from his hospital bed in Malta. Oh, mm. I don't know where this is going. Yeah, sorry. No, don't be sorry. These are stories that need to be told. They need to be told. The migrants had each paid a smuggler $700, which is the equivalent of £575 or €630, Euro, to make the journey from Libya to Europe in the scorching heat of the central Mediterranean. Then their fuel ran out. Then their food. Then their water. Oh, Jesus. And he is the sole survivor. <gasps> He says of the passengers, including a pregnant woman who attempted the arduous journey in one of the deadliest stretches of water in the world. And so Mohammed says, We were at sea for 11 days. We started drinking seawater. After five days, two people died. Then every day, two more died. So Mohammed was picked up in Maltese waters on Monday after the European Border and Coast Guard Agency spotted a dinghy adrift at sea. Footage of the rescue by Malta's armed forces shows him slumped over a man's body before he was airlifted to hospital. And Mohammed said, God sent the Maltese to save me. Um, the 38-year-old, who describes himself as an exiled Ethiopian politician from former rebel group the Or a liberation front decided to make the journey after he was contacted by friends from Germany and the thing is like I don't think we've here in the UK we cannot imagine what it's like to be a political politically exiled nope it's so beyond anything that we can imagine because because we're safe at the moment here like yeah so no one's going to knock on our door and try and kill us because of our political views no and once in Libya he met a Somali named Ismail and Ishmael sorry and together they arranged their passage via a smuggler they set out on the 1st of August 2019 from the Libyan city of Zawaya, which was 28 miles west of the capital, Tripoli. The agent gave us the GPS and told us, go to Malta, he said. Those on board were a man and a pregnant woman from Ghana, two men from Ethiopia and 11 Somalis. After running out of fuel, food and water, Mohammed describes a desperate situation as they tried in vain to get help from boats and helicopters passing by. We saw many boats. We shouted, help help we were waving and they were just passing a helicopter came and left jesus christ so muhammad closes his eyes to demonstrate how his fellow passengers began to die they died in the boat it was sunny hot no food and no water ishmael said we should put the bodies in the sea we took the bodies and threw them in the water the bodies were smelling yeah but eventually says the pair were alone on the boat ishmael said everyone is dead now why would we live at one point he describes how his partner became frustrated and said they should die together he threw everything in the sea phones and gps i said if you want to die die on your own i don't want to die and then ishmael died too muhammad remembers the last days of his journey as like being in a dream he does not remember his rescue and was unaware that Ishmael died. He believes he faces arrest if he returns to Ethiopia because his former rebel group is 
outlawed. He left 15 years ago, um, first for Eritrea and then Sudan, and wants to travel to the UK. So he says, if you go to Germany, you have to speak German. I have a little English, he says. Does he have any regrets about taking the journey? No, he says. I am happy. I am alive. So almost 4,900 people, and I emphasise the word people because I think there's a real danger in describing these people as migrants because it dehumanises. So almost 4,900 people have crossed the channel in small boats since lockdown began, and that's more than double the amount thought to have crossed in the whole of 2019. We're um, we're not all the way through 2020 yet. The number attempting perilous journeys to other parts of Europe is also rising. Italy has recorded 16,900 42 sea arrivals so far in 2020, compared with 11,471 in the whole of um, 2019. Smugglers previously would send um, migrants, smugglers, people have paid yeah. people have paid for this perilous journey with, you know, more than they've got um, and these and smugglers and they pay with their lives. Well, this is it. These smugglers sent people across the channel on trucks and this included 39 Vietnamese people found dead in a lorry in Essex last yeah, October. Right, oh, it's awful. It's in the news at the minute because they're like, I suppose going through how all the evidence it's just yeah. it's oh it's awful it was hot and they put in double the amount of people that they should have done they just ran out of ex- the thing is, oxygen there shouldn't be anyone in the trap traps aren't designed no. for carrying people and you know you're taking money off people you're not risk assessing it you don't you don't care you're not doing it if you're a people smuggler you're not doing it to help people get out of their countries and flee their war it's making a profit. Yeah, and what's scary now is that more and more people are travelling on makeshift boats due to the increased surveillance in ports and tunnels. Right. After Franco-British security measures were ramped up last year, coronavirus has left countries such as Tunisia facing serious economic hardship and unemployment, while others, including Libya, are dealing with the effects of war. And that's led to an increase in sea arrivals this year in countries including Italy and Malta, uh, according to figures from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Arrivals in southeastern Europe are also up on 2019, mostly from Syria, followed by Morocco and Iraq. But European responses have often been brutal. Humanitarian organisations say pushbacks at borders in countries such as Greece, an absence of sea rescues in the Mediterranean and unhealthy quarantine arrangements have created huge challenges, and it comes at a time when a movement is harder and more dangerous thanks to travel restrictions and the closure of transport routes and processing centres. Last week, a man was found dead on Sangat Beach near Calais in northern France. He and a friend had tried to cross the English Channel, one of the world's busiest shipping lanes, in an inflatable dinghy Shit. with shovels for paddles. The friend said he was just 16, but French authorities said his papers belonged to a 28-year-old Sudanese migrant, and an autopsy showed he was an adult. He couldn't swim, his companion said. I have a problem with this. They probably weren't his papers. No. He just had to have some papers. And UK Home Secretary Priti Patel Ugh. said, The tragic loss was a brutal reminder of the abhorrent criminal gangs and people smugglers who exploit vulnerable people. I do not agree with that statement. I think that the loss is because our world's really messed up and, and war has yeah. ruined people's lives and we have an inhuman response yeah surely instead of, instead of opening our arms and supporting people or trying maybe not to sell arms to other countries and if somebody's in need help them yeah it's really easy yeah so. but it's our whole fear that you know if, if we help people over here then we won't be able to get the help that we need but it doesn't make sense it doesn't so that is my story and it's a reflection of current times yeah, so I thought it was important that. to share it is it's always important to remember mm. I think sometimes it's too easy to, to forget and it's really difficult to think about isn't it as well yes I couldn't imagine being in that situation 
I have a story for you. I would like to tell you the story of the Blue Bell. And I got my sources from, well, I listened to a, a podcast that I really like uh, called My Favourite Murder. And it's the 28th episode that uh, they cover in this. I also looked at Wikipedia, Reader's Digest. Ooh. I know. Uh, MysteriousFacts.com. Ooh. I also watched Extraordinary Lives, a documentary on YouTube. I'm going to tell you the story of the Blue Bell. It was an 18-metre twin mast luxury yacht. The ship was skippered by a decorated World War II and Korean War pilot named Julian Harvey and accompanied by his sixth wife. That is one, two, three, four, five, six. Impressive. I know. What a hunk. Wife, Mary Dean. Harvey had had five previous wives before Mary. Now, to me, that's a bit of a red flag. Do you know what I mean? If you can't keep... (laughs) Five ladies are probably going to be like, you can't keep me, mate. There's only one constant in these failing uh, relationships and marriages, and that seems to be Harvey. Anyway, one of his wives, his second wife, and and her mother were killed in a car accident when he was driving. What? He somehow managed to escape before the vehicle plunged over the bridge into the waters below. Harvey walked away unharmed and uninjured, Mm. but collected a handsome payout. Ding, ding, ding. Sure, just keep that in mind. Anyway, back to the bluebell. She, and I believe all ships are female, I may be wrong. I think you're right. She was chartered by Dr. Arthur Duprat, a family man from Wisconsin. You said it right! Oh my god, I've got fear from the time when I said it wrong. <laughs> Wiz. <laughs> Wiz. Wisconsin. idyllic dream to take his family on a trip of a lifetime and also to see if the life on the high seas could be a more permanent thing for them. They planned to sail from Florida to the Bahamas, setting off on November the 8th, 1961. Aboard the Bluebell with his family, his wife Jean and their three children, Brian 14, Terry Joe 11 and Rini, I'm gonna go for Rini, seven. Over the next four days, Harvey sailed the Bluebell towards the great Abaco Island. The group spent the week enjoying the island um, as a family, Arthur even told a local guy that this has been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation and we will be back before Christmas. But this was not to be the case. That night, after a family meal was prepared by Mary, a horrific act would befall the bluebell. <sighs> Around 9pm, Terry Jo headed below deck to her sleeping quarters. In the middle of the night, Terry Jo was startled awake by her brother yelling, Help, Daddy, help! She also heard stumping noises and then silence. Although terrified, Terry Jo Terry Jo crept out of her cabin to investigate what had happened. She saw her mother and brother lying crumpled in a pool of blood in the main cabin. Oh my god. She knew instantly they were dead. But brave Terry continued on climbing the stairs and stuck her head out of the hatch. She saw more blood pooled on the sideboard um, by the cockpit. Cock cock cockpit? Sorry. And possibly a knife. I'm going to do that again. <laughs> you can't get your mouth around that, can you, Sean? <laughs> no, I can't get my mouth around the cockpit. <laughs> Fucking hell. I'm going to try that one more time. <sighs> she saw more blood pooled on the starboard side of the cockpit. And possibly a knife. She climbed on deck and turned towards the front of the boat. Suddenly, Harvey lunged at her and shoved her down the stairs, shouting, Get back down there. Confused and scared, she made her way back down to the cabin and got onto her bed. In time, she was aware that water was seeping (gasps) into her cabin and quickly covered the floor. 
Terry Jo realised that the ship was sinking. Terrified, she knew she had to move quickly to survive, but suddenly she saw the captain's dark silhouette in the front of her cabin's door. They made eye contact, and then he turned and walked back to the upper deck. Despite this, Terry Jo, Terry jo knew she had to leave her cabin or she'd drown. Wading through waist-deep water to the stairs, she climbed to the top again. Terry Jo saw the ship's dinghy was already in the water. She saw Harvey jump aboard, jump overboard to the dinghy as he disappeared into the night. And I want you to remember that she was 11 at mm. the time. She'd just seen her mum and brother be murdered. She can't find her father or her sister in the dark. And she's in the middle of the ocean and the ship is rapidly sinking. And she is cold and scared. I bet. She's lost and it's noisy. Despite this, she remembers that there is a cork life float that was kept lashed to the side, right side of the main cabin um, which is now just barely above water um, and just as a float she kind of wrestles it and just as the float comes free the boat deck and the boat sink beneath <sighs> her feet into the ocean so she's holding onto this life raft but one of the ropes it, there's a rope snagged to the life ra- raft and as the boat sinks Oh no. It pulls Terry Joe and the raft below the water. But luckily and miraculously, the line that's caught comes free and the float and Terry Joe pop back up to the surface. She huddles low on the float, afraid that the captain might be lying from the water. No water, no food. And dressed in her pyjamas, Terry Joe was exposed to the mercy of the vast ocean. The night, it was so dark because the moon was hidden behind the clouds and she couldn't see a thing. Waves broke without warning. The salt water stung her eyes it's and terrifying. And a sudden shower drenched her. The next morning, the sun drove the chills from Terry Joe's body. But she soon began to realise that this was not a good thing because she started to get burnt by the sun. Oh, God. The flimsy cork float began to disintegrate, exposing her legs to the unknown in the depth of the sea. And a few parrotfish had a little go. Oh, I used to have a parrotfish. Did you? Yeah. Oh, massive. Um, mine was big teeth. parrot cichlid I had. Maybe it's not a parrotfish. He was called Pudding. Of course he was. What a cute fish name. Mm. The following day, a rescue plane flew by, but they did not spot the tiny girl <gasps> in the tiny float. As she was looking out to sea, she spotted ghostly shape about 30 yards from a float just beneath the surface and the shapes came closer and she's got her legs in the water but it was a family of porpoises and they remained close by for hours mm. and they provided comfort to terry joe after another cold and dark and awful night had passed and she was surviving the effects of the elements terry joe was in a bad way begun to hallucinate more often imagining tiny desert islands complete with isolated palm trees she tried paddle towards it but then it disappeared oh. fourth day i think it's the fourth day she did not feel the burning rays she was in a deep sleep close to death by the afternoon she opened her eyes to see a huge shadow looming before her like a great beast its rumble was so deep that she could feel it pounding rhythm in her chest as she watched it it seemed to metamorphosize from an unworldly vessel floating above the sea into a great whale and then into a solid black wall suspended in the air above her when she looked to the top of the great wall she saw heads and waving arms She could faintly hear voices and shouting. Finally, she felt herself being suspended in space, strong arms lifting her up slowly. The day after the bluebell went down, 
The lookout said a Puerto a Puerto Rico bound oil tanker spotted a small wooden floating small wooden like dinghy floating in the middle of, uh, of the broad deep northwest Providence Channel. When the captain pulled the tanker closer, a man in the dinghy yelled. My name is Julian Harvey, and I am the master of the Bluebell. In the days that followed, Harvey told the Coast Guard in Miami that he was the sole survivor of an awful accident that resulted in the sinking of a ship and the death of everyone but himself. But then he heard that Terry Joe had survived. With hearing the news and knowing that she would be his downfall, no insurance payout and no and a life behind bars, Harvey took his own life. Terry Jo survived to tell a tale, and her tale proved that Har- what Harvey had said was a lie. Her father, mother, brother and younger sister, along with Mary, had been slaughtered aboard the Bluebell so that he could collect the insurance from their death of his young... Because he'd only been married to his wife since mm, July and they right. killed her in November. And she was like five years younger than him, so maybe ten. And the murder of the Trapat family was just part of the plot to make it look legit. <sighs> Terry Jo retur- returned to Green Bay to live with her auntie and she said she struggled to come to terms with the loss of her family and often looked for her father um, whenever she was near this, uh, near water. Um, but she actually was never scared of water, and she even worked protecting water in her job. Nearly 50 years later, in 2010, Terry dropped the Joe part of her name when she was 12. She finally revealed publicly the details of the night her family were killed and the day spent drifting in the open water in a book called Alone orphaned on the ocean. When asked by CBS News, why are you telling the story now, almost 50 years after the ordeal, Terry said, I always believed I was saved for a reason, but it took me 50 years to gain the strength to be able to give other people hope with my story. If just one person goes on to heal from a life tragedy, my journey will have been worth it. I am a survivor trying to reach other survivors. It took me so long, but I want people to understand that there is no timeline with healing. It's never too late. Actual tears in my eyes. What a story. Amazing. And I think what she's saying is so poignant. Like, we need to talk about our trauma. We Whatever you survive, it doesn't, you know, have to be as insanely dramatic as four days on the ocean and a murdered family. But Whatever's going on. Uh, that's why storytelling's so important. Yeah. It's how we make sense of the world. It is. And... True everything that happens whatever it is and getting out there and finding out that other people find comfort in your challenges and your and your wins Mm. so that was the story of terry joe thank you i really enjoyed that story i enjoyed telling it to you good i thought you did so as you um i suppose highlighted in that story the open ocean can be a terrifying place miles from shore and storm-tossed seas and nothing but water in all directions including straight down, a sailor or a fisherman cannot help but wonder what lurks in the depths. When the oceans were still unexplored, these fears often took the form of imaginary monsters. Many sea monsters include features from living animals. A large tentacle becomes part of a monstrous sea serpent or many-armed kraken. The eye sees a fragment and the mind fills in the rest. Sure does. A blend of tall tales, mistaken identity and resonant cultural symbols. Probably also a fair amount of... uh... Rum. Rum. (laughs) Yes. Um, Stories of sea monsters often reveal more about the minds of the imaginers than they do about the natural world. 
So when European explorers like Christopher Columbus set out on their voyages of discovery in the 1400s and the 1500s, they were literally sailing into uncharted waters. Sea monsters were a concern for them, and frightening rumours ran rampant. Sailors' tales were sometimes the only first-hand information available about ocean animals. These stories ranged from accurate observations to honest mistakes to outright tall tales. That would be you. No, I would make so much up. You really would. Um, and with no way for even the most objective naturalists to separate fact from fiction, the meticulous drawings of sea monsters in European natu- natural history books from the 15 and 1600s revealed the overlap between science and legend at that time. So many sincere sea, sea serpent sightings... Wow, that's a tricky one. In it. <laughs> ...were later debunked as cases of mistaken identity. <laughs> <laughs> For instance, several sea monster carcasses turned out to be partially decayed basking sharks, an immense fish that grows up to nine metres. No, they're big, and they just, Mm. I'm going to show you my impression of one. I know it's not great for a podcast, but they just do this. That's basically what they do. I know. I went went to drama school, you know. So other examples of mistaken identity include a baby sea serpent that proved to be a deformed black snake and enormous serpents that turned out to be a mass of floating seaweed. Oh, well, that's disappointing. That's when you're just pissed. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in the following mythical secret creature. The mythical kraken may be the largest sea monster ever imagined. Some stories described it as more than 2.5 kilometres, that's 1.5 miles around with arms as large as ship's masts. Perhaps based on sightings of giant squid tentacles, this multi-armed monster rarely attacked humans, preferring to stay in deep water where it feasted on fish. Yeah, that's nice. The chief dangers came from being too close when it surfaced, or too close when it sank, as a boat could be sucked down in the whirlpool it created when it submerged. So, the kraken is described in Scandinavian stories dating back to about 1180 AD. Oh, wow. And the kraken was said to live near Norway in Iceland. Yeah, it goes way back. It has long, flexible arms or tentacles like those of a giant squid or octopus and the limbs are so large that they look like a ring of islands it ate huge quantities of fish which it lured with it with an enticing smell yes. <laughs> fishermen would often rush over hoping to get a share of the kraken's catch but also if you suddenly found your ship surrounded by fish it could mean that there was a kraken nearby yeah, totally. um, or a strange smell or yeah could be a kraken <laughs> Or it could be blim. <laughs> um, when a kraken surfaced, a shimmering cascade of fish might be seen tumbling down its back. But beware, when the kraken sank back down below the surface, it would create a whirlpool vortex that could take down ships. So 500 years ago, sailors in northern Europe told of this amazing creature, a monster bigger than a man with numerous long snake-like arms covered with suckers for grabbing prey. And evidence for this so-called devil fish included bits of giant tentacles found in whale stomachs and vicious battle scars left on the skin of whales by its suckers and claws. But eventually, in the 1850s scientists recognised the devil fish as a real animal the giant squid they are amazing oh, I love giant squids I'm sure so I much. don't know whether I heard this right I'm sure when I was a kid that they found like a tentacle yeah and it was like the length of or half a length of a football pitch the, the huge and um, I'm getting very excited now talking about giant squids have you seen the documentary no oh, there's a documentary where they go down in one of those sub pod things whatever they're called yeah, yeah, to look for giant really squids deep. yeah and there's like they see nothing 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 and then like when they're giving up hope there's just like this tentacle goes past oh. and it's like oh it's so exciting I'm gonna have to find that. Right, it's really good. But there aren't many like 
don't know. I'm assuming there aren't that many. Oh, no, there are. Are Yeah, all over the world as well. I love that, because they certainly sound like the sort of thing that people try and hunt. Yeah, but remember, they like going in the really deep bits, and they're quite elusive. But yeah, they found, like, giant squid all over the place and, like, different sizes, so they thought they were different species at first. But now they are recognising that they're just different ages and levels of maturity. The giant squid has the largest eyes of any living creature, and each eye can be as large as a human head. Wow. They have sharp, parrot-like beaks, and this was the first hard proof of their existence when in 1853 a giant squid washed ashore in Denmark and was cut up for bait, but its beak was saved, and this led to the recognition of the genus. And it is a deep ocean creature rarely seen near the surface. Most sightings involve dying animals or corpses that wash up on shore, and the suckers can leave scars on whales. Wow, yeah, because they often have fights, don't they, with mm. sperm whales. At the American Natural History Museum, which is where I got a lot of this information from, they have a jar that contains a two-meter a tentacle from a giant squid. The com- yeah, the complete specimen was caught by fishermen near New Zealand in 1997 and it was shipped frozen to the American Museum of Natural History. The entire animal measured 7.5 metres, that's 25 feet, which is not even large by giant squid standards. The entire animal measured 7.5 metres, which is 25 feet, which is not even large by giant squid standards. So that's a small one. That's yeah. A, that's a weedy squid. So some can grow up to 20 metres, which is about 70 feet. So going from 25 feet to 70 feet, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big difference. The giant Giant squid is not the biggest squid. Scientists have known of an even larger species since at least 1925, but no adult specimen has been found in one piece until 2007, when fishermen hauled one up near New Zealand, dubbed the colossal squid. (laughs) It's thought to be the largest living creature without a backbone. You wouldn't say that to the squid if you met it, though. Oh, they're so beautiful. And have you seen that they have that, um, is it bioluminescence on squid? Yeah. I like it when they swim because they like... Oh, me too. And they're clever. And I don't understand why people eat them. Why have you eaten squid? I just don't like seeing their little tentacles when they put them in the heat and they go, woo, like curl up. So giant squid are clearly not quite the scary monsters they have been painted as. They only attack their direct prey, and scientist Roper believes that they are not naturally aggressive to human beings. As far as we can tell, they are more gentle giants. And also, human beings shouldn't really be that deep down. No. And though they have been known for over 150 years, we still know almost nothing about their daily behaviour or social patterns, their eating habits, or where they travel on a typical day or year. Perhaps the squid remain so mysterious, almost mythical, because they are so elusive and lurk so deep humans need their monsters giant squids are so big and are such creepy looking animals that it's easy to turn them into violent beasts of our imagination but they're only creepy if you think they're creepy yeah but even if giant squid are gentle giants the ocean itself remains deeply mysterious only 5% of it's been explored and new discoveries are still being made the megamouth shark <laughs> great name is over 5 metres long and has a face no one would ever forget but it was only discovered in 1976 we may never might know what's down there, it's perfectly possible that there is something much bigger and scarier than a giant squid lurking in the depths far beyond human reach. And then just to, I had to put in a Sean fact. Excellent. Male giant squid have an external penis that's up to one metre long. (laughs) That is terrifying. (laughs) I found that and I was not going to put it in, um, but then I thought, Sean will enjoy that fact. I'll enjoy that fact. Yeah, that is really Selection of stories. Well, I like that the Kraken isn't an evil baddie baddie. No. It's just sort of like accidental maiming and killing. It's <laughs> just a little bit clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> 
not aware of his own size. No, he's like, I just really like fish. Fish are great. And then he's like, oh, sorry, humans. <laughs> so have you got any um, top tips from Sean? I, I have some top tips. Mary uh, these fun. are Rich Johnson's for CNN. Ooh. These are his top tips. Uh, he had some, he had seven, but I've taken six because I got bored of reading his top tips and editing uh, to make them shorter. Sorry, Rich. Nothing for dinner. Well, fishes gather beneath vessels. Ooh. So you use anything flashy to serve as a lure. Once you catch one, you can use the guts as baits to catch more. You can collect rainwater to drink in a tarpaulin or in your boat sails. Remember, never drink salt water. It will make you ill and it will speed up your death. Top tip number two, stop small fires on board from spreading. Have water to hand. You're well, on, you're, in the... <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the sea, so you're going to find some I, water. Yeah, I'm confident that <laughs> you'll find water. When fighting the fire, keep a clear escape route behind you at all times and always extinguish fire from the bottom up. <laughs> Tip number three. If water is getting into your boat through a leak, you have a real problem. You do. Locate the leak immediately. Uh, you can even fix it with um, gaffer tape and uh, get yourself to some dry land. A SAP. Has your boat capsized? Is tip number four. Well, don't worry. Tie a bit of rope to something secure in the middle of your boat and then lean back holding the rope and your weight will pull your boat upright. Tip number five is a good one to know, I think. When a shark wants to eat you, it will hunch its back and lower its fins and then it will zigzag <laughs> towards you like a 1980s dance. What you want to do is thrust something at its super sensitive nose or stab it in the eyes or the gills. It's all very violent. Um, and then I've apparently repeated myself for top tip number six. So you, you just did five and not six. Yeah, so if you sprung a leak, plug it quick. Okay. Get to dry land. We Apparently, knew that. I feel that's a really important one to that's, reiterate. That's the one to emphasize. Yeah, you don't want to be on a leaky. No. Do you have any top I tips? do. So I've got two sources. The first one is the Sea Survival Manual. Oh, well, that sounds much more useful than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them overlap. So shelter. Don't discard any clothing. Multiple layers can keep you warm during cold nights. On hot days, drape or prop clothes overhead so you don't burn. Like your tip, water. Never drink seawater. If you have a raincoat, detach the hood and use it to catch and store rainwater. Plastic bags and rain boots also make excellent containers. Always rinse them with the first raindrops to wash any, away any salt from the sea spray. That's a good call. Mm, I thought so. And then this is like yours. Food, a boat's shadow can attract fish to catch them, string jewellery into a lure. I don't tend to wear jewellery. I might struggle. What? Wait, so you're telling me when you're out yachting, you don't wear all your Oh, my bling. All your best jewels. <laughs> no, because the magpies might come and get me. No. <laughs> Pieces from a smartphone can work too. Shoelaces or unravelled sock threads can serve as fishing line. Save any uneaten bits for bait. Rescue. Relax and find familiar shapes and clouds to ease boredom and keep an eye out for planes and ships. If you spot one, use a pocket mirror or smartphone screen to reflect sunlight. Ooh, the signal. The SOS thing. Yeah, the signal can be seen up to 10 miles away on a sunny day. Um, at the end of this article, it does say though, warning, use these methods as last resorts. If they don't work, direct your complaints to I did not survive at popsci.com. <laughs> <laughs> 
I also found some tips in Vanity Fair. Oh, excellent. Mm. So assess your ailments. Um, so it could be a triage situation where you say, what do I have to do right now? So you check out your physical health. Am I bleeding? Am I cold? What do I do? It says invest in electronics. Um, You're at the sea. There's no uh, oh, exactly. Um, so the next tip is, but if you didn't buy a beacon, so the electronics... There are about a hundred things you can do with duct tape. Having duct tape can help you repair a raft or canopy or create um, shelter. I once made a fancy outfit out of duct tape. Oh. I mean, it's not relevant to survival <laughs> the sea, but, you know... It, it might help. It might ease the boredom. <laughs> Can you make a prom dress and your duct tape? Don't be a baby or a control freak. The control freaks and the babies die. Shit. <laughs> I'm kind of like a happy mix of both. And the ones who need to know what's going on right now, or at least pretend they do so they can control the situation, they probably die first. Then the babies die next because they're the ones saying, I can't deal with this. I'm going to wait for somebody to save me. And also be glad it's not the 60s. I've always been <laughs> the 60s. Your story was in the 60s. Yep. The odds of being lost at sea for a sustained period of time now are really much more remote. Life rafts have very advanced signalling devices and portable water makers. You still need to have your wits about you and be prepared to survive on your own for a couple of days, but it probably won't be a couple of weeks. Nice. That's good. Yeah. So. And who do we direct our complaints to again? I did not survive at popsi.com. Thank you. I will be contact. <laughs> when you don't survive. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that was lovely. I enjoyed that. I think we all, uh, all of us are now equipped to survive to at survive sea. sea. And mm. if not, we know how to complain. So that leads us on to Survivor of the Week. This week's survivor I found in the Metro, and the title is Woman Thinks She's Been Kidnapped After Stroke Wipes 20 Years of Her Memories. Wow! I know! Um, so Stevie Carver was having a bad day. It was the second shift of a new job and her car wouldn't start, so she got a lift from her partner. She had no idea that that decision would save her life. Wow. As it meant he also had to pick her up that evening. On her way home from work on February the 12th, 2018, she suffered a stroke and was left fighting for her life. Family were told she had a 2% chance of survival. Wow. And she was placed in an induced coma. After over a week, she came round, but she had no idea where she was, and she'd lost 20 years of her life. Wow. The 38-year-old, so she's young, yeah. um, from Norfolk, tells the Metro, I thought it was 1998, I'd been kidnapped, and I was being held hostage. I had no idea what was going on. It meant I wasn't very cooperative. <laughs> I wouldn't be cooperative <laughs> either. Um, (laughs) she says I was hallucinating and was sure I was being experimented on I recognised my daughter but I was shouting at my son saying you're not my son I don't know you I know so Stevie had been born with an arteriovenous malformation which means an artery and vein aren't connected properly over time this had weakened and eventually it burst causing a brain hemorrhage and stroke she had no idea she had this as she'd never had any scans of her head and they are rare affecting around one percent of the population the first sign something was wrong was when she got into the car with her partner that night when he came to pick her up she had a sudden and severe stabbing pain in her head which she says was unlike anything she'd ever experienced before she said she just started screaming because it was so painful and my then partner didn't understand what was going on we got home and he told me to stay there while he opened the the door but I tried to get out and just collapsed on the ground and that's the last thing I remember her partner called an ambulance and she was rushed to hospital but a scan showed the damage in her brain and she was immediately moved to a specialist neurology ward where she underwent emergency brain surgery wow uh huh although the operation was a success she was placed in an induced coma for the first week and it took them a week to make her stable enough to bring her round eventually when she woke up they realised that the stroke had had a huge impact on her memory as well as physically 
She says it was terrifying and I couldn't understand what had happened. I was a very difficult patient. I was given thickened liquids because I couldn't swallow properly. I'd worked in a nursing home and I'd seen those being given to people with dementia, so I'd refuse them. Because <laughs> have you ever seen? Yeah, well, my yeah. granddad was a dementia patient. Yeah, he was quite awful. Awesome to drink it. I mean, yeah, because it's horrible. Yeah, they look pretty gross. He'd be like, "Do you want one?" Yeah, I did. Um, I had some training from a speech and language therapist about um, like people that have problems with the swallow, and she got us to make thickened drinks and try them. And although like it tastes the same, because you're seeing it as a different. Yeah, the texture is so. Different. Yeah, it makes it really weird. Um, she said I was like that for a couple of weeks, and slowly things started to come back but my memory was impacted for a long time I'd ask the same thing over and over again Stevie had a long stay in hospital and suffered weakness down the right hand side of her body one of the things she struggled with was being one of the youngest people on the ward when people think of strokes they associate them with older people before this happened to me that's what I thought too but it can happen to younger people as this shows it was quite isolating to be around people who are much older than me in hospital she says she spent three months doing physio to learn how to walk talk and read again and being away from her children made her mental health suffer she explains I was meant to go to a rehab facility but I miss my children so much and we agreed that it was making it worse. I have a fantastic team who helped me go home and agreed to, to come in to do physio with me every day. That meant a lot. Now over two years on, Stevie's still impacted by her stroke. She's not been able to return to work and still has weakness, though it's improved and she's continuing with physio. She still struggles with her memory, fatigue and other cognitive functions. She's using her time to volunteer and raise awareness for the Stroke Association. Oh, well done Stevie. And that's kind of why I wanted to share her as a survivor of the week because of all the awareness work she's doing. Yeah, and she survived something that, like a two percent jump. She's very bloody lucky. And tough, tough cookie. Oh, definitely. Excellent. So all that remains, Shan, is to say, don't drink seawater and keep, keep on, on surviving. surviving.